Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today, I speak with Adrian Betridge, Managing Partner at Baringa Partners, the award-winning multinational consultancy working across energy, financial services, consumer products and retail, telecoms and media, and central government. For long-time listeners, Adrian will be a familiar name, having made his first appearance on the show as my guest for episode four, way back when I started this podcast almost three years ago. Not, as you'll hear me start the podcast by saying episode three, for anyone out there, as I know us consulting types like, there's an inconsistency that I wanted to tell you about because I'm sure some of you would notice it. Now, for those who don't know, Beringer is actually where I cut my teeth in consulting, spending three years from 2012 to 2015 working as part of their rapidly growing financial services practice. Since our first interview, Adrian and I have kept in touch, and I've learned so much from him over that time. Knowing the journey that he and the Beringer team have been on since we recorded round one, I was really keen to have him back on the show to share the next chapter in the Beringer story and dig into more of Adrian's own background and what drives him as a leader. We cover a whole range of topics in this one, including Adrian's upbringing and how his early experiences as a child set him on the path to where he is today. 
how Baringa Partners have been able to grow so quickly over the last three years and the challenges that Adrian and his fellow partners have had to overcome during that time. And Adrian's advice to other consulting leaders like you on how he's had to adapt as the firm has grown and what he recommends for others looking to emulate Baringa's success. I always enjoy catching up with Adrian and it was great to be able to sit down with him for this round two interview and share all of his fantastic insights and advice with you. If you want to find out what it takes to become one of the leading firms in the consulting industry, then you'll definitely want to listen to this one. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Adrian Betridge. This will be 83, so... Number 83. 80 episodes after we first oh. talked. Well, I was number three first time around, is that right? You were number three. What was that, January 2018? Yeah, so 80 episodes later. <laughs> wow. Well, why don't we just, instead of doing... You know, sometimes I, I start these with a sort of hello, but as I think we're already rolling, why don't we jump into it? Sure, let's go for it. Yeah, it's, a lot has changed. And I think today we were both saying how we listened to the last episode in preparation for this. So for anyone listening to this, we will not be covering the same content. So go back, listen to episode three with me and Adrian first. So today I want to cover, I guess, some topics that I was really interested in. I know some of them you've spoken to others about, but some of them I think just talk to the journey that yourself and Beringa have been on for the last three years. But before we go on to Beringa, I want to almost start a little earlier than we did in the last podcast because the last one we talked about how you got into consulting and actually the sort of Accenture meetup that was meant to be a football social sorry that you know you took the wrong door to but I'd love to almost go back further to you as a you as a kid because I think you know, we we see people in their role now we don't don't see or hear about them as what were they like as a, a child and I'd, I'd love to find out a bit more about sort of your early years and particularly thinking about goals and you know, where this focus and determination came from. I know we touched on that in our last episode. Do you remember when you sort of, you first had a goal, what that goal was and, and were you always goal orientated or actually was it something that appeared later in life? Yeah, I think I had a, a goal really early on in life to play for Liverpool Football Club. I had posters of, of Kenny Dalglish on my wall and the 1980s for Liverpool were the glory years. I was born in 1971, so the end of the 70s and the 80s, uh, amazing football team. I was a, a red through and through. I loved Kenny Dalglish. So playing football was my passion and where I put lots of energy after school and into sport in general, then fitness, and then starting to have goals that were more about, okay, what can I do and what can I achieve? But they were all sort of selfish, sporty, friendship kind of things. I guess my first sort of thinking about goals that have more of a work relationship to them came when I got my first job as a newspaper boy. And my, my kids yeah, hate me telling this story. But, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was getting up at sort of 5.30 in the morning, doing a newspaper round every day. And as I was working at the news agents, delivering newspapers, the head of the news agent said to me, he said, oh, you're a pretty responsible kid. You seem to get here on time and do a good job of your paper round. Would you mind opening up the shop? And so if I give you the keys, you can open up the shop, mark up the newspapers for the rest of the boys. I'll pay you and then you pay the boys. And then there was a fining system that he'd introduced, which was anyone who got a complaint from a customer because their paper didn't arrive, if they'd just given up on their round, it was too wet, bin the newspapers, I uh, used to get fined 50p's. Uh, so I get to keep the fines and got paid a bit extra for getting there early and opening up the shop. 
And so realizing that right from an early age, that getting up and having hard work and earning a little bit of money for myself, my parents, my dad was a postman, my mum worked as a dinner lady at the primary school that I went to. And so we didn't come from a family that had any money. We never holidayed abroad ever as a child. You know, it was always in, in tents on the, on the coast of the UK, swimming in stony beaches off of Hastings and Weymouth and places like that. And so realizing that I needed to work and that if you did a good job at work, people gave you a bit more responsibility, kind of got sowed that seed when I was 12, 13 years old. It's a great story. And I love that you became the managing partner of the uh, news agents at such a young age. It's interesting what you say about your your parents' careers. And I, I say that because I think one of the archetypes in consulting is that it, it's a career that often people come to from a well-off background. You know, you know someone whose parents worked in it or has has been in a firm, and actually that's what leads to the industry. And I'd love to get your take on actually how your upbringing influenced that choice of career, because, you know, I went to a, a state school where a lot of my friends' parents did similar careers. You know, one of my best friends is a builder. His dad was a builder. And it was a sort of natural progression to go into that line of work. Do you remember that if there were any turning points for you or any sort of times that really stick in your mind where you made, I guess, a conscious decision to go to university and, and follow a slightly different line of work or career path? Yeah, I think I, I had a, an amazing group of friends at secondary school, primary school and secondary school, and that group of friends and their family circumstances and their families' careers were very different to my parents' careers. I remember being sick from school and spending a day with my dad in the sorting office at, at the post office, and I couldn't go to school and he couldn't leave me at home. And so I sat in the corner and watched all these postmen, and I actually got a temporary job when I was at university in the sorting office later on in life. But I remember sitting there as a 13, 14-year-old kid thinking, I don't think I want to be a postman. And I had friends whose dads were HR directors at BP who were getting picked up by a chauffeur in the morning and driven to work. I had my friends' dads or, or mums who were lawyers. And so I had some exposure through my friends' parents of more what we would consider professional careers. No one in my family had been and stayed on to do A-levels before me, let alone gone to university. So I was a bit of a curious kid who saw what my friends' ambitions were, and I kind of copied some of them because I didn't have a, a role model of that sort of ambition within my own family. So staying on to do A-levels was a bit of a choice that my mum was like, oh, you know, you could get a job. I was working when I was 14 is when she left uh, school to go and work. And so I stayed on to do A-levels and then I decided to go to university and, and do a degree. And my mum was like, you can't avoid work forever. You know, you do have to go and get a job one day. But that path of education led to the opportunities we talked about. And I'll ask podcast, Nick, where I stumbled into consulting and had a professional career that was very different to my family upbringing and the family around me and the careers that they've all had. And I remember when I got my first job as I started work at Anson Consulting, that my salary at that time wasn't that far away from my dad's salary as a, he was lecturing postman, how to be postman, kind of a trainer in their training department. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, education was really paid off in terms of giving me opportunities that my folks never had when they were young. I think it's a really, really powerful story, Adrian. And to your point of actually, you were the first one in the family to go to university. That feels like quite a daunting thing at what was 18. And what you mentioned there about your mum actually sort of encouraging you to go and join the world of work. How did you get yourself comfortable with that decision? How did you deal with almost that that pressure from the family 
and I'm not saying, you know, you can tell me how much there was, but actually to, to go into work. Because I think that's quite a hard thing if all of your family have done one thing and you're bucking that trend. Was it following your friends like you say, or how, how did you get yourself comfortable with this is the right decision for me? It was relatively easy because my family, they were maybe short on um, career guidance for me, but long on love and support and encouragement. And so anything that I wanted to do, they would be like, oh, wow, yeah, okay, that sounds great. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. So I had plenty of support, plenty of encouragement and a willingness to accept and to support me taking a slightly different path to the one that they had taken. I actually left school at 18 post my A-levels and went and did a two-year voluntary service mission before I went to university. So I went and spent two years um, doing missionary service in charities, working with disadvantaged children, working with disabled groups, working with old age pensioners and teaching and doing service projects. And that two years out before I started my economics and politics degree at Loughborough led me to a point of recognizing and valuing the fact that I had this choice of who do I want to be when I grow up. And I grew up a lot in those two years while I was doing my uh, voluntary service that then shaped how I approached university to get the most out of my time at university. If I'd gone straight from my A-levels to university, I don't think I'd have been as mature or grown up as much as that uh, voluntary service allowed me to. So that means when I turn up at university, I was pretty focused uh, and I was looking to get the most from the experience in all that that means, from the sports at Loughborough and the educational opportunities there and eventually to a career in consulting. So yeah, I had very supportive parents and very loving parents and uh, that just gave me a platform to have self-confidence to then leap into the unknown from a family history point of view into doing new things that they hadn't done that I was excited to go and explore. I feel this podcast today is going to be a, a journey of things I didn't know about you, Adrian, because I didn't know about the uh, the two years missionary work. And I, I want to come on to your advice for your own kids. I know we touched on it a little bit last time, but they're all a little bit older now, so I'm sure you've got more. But to your point around your family values, something, again, that sticks out if I think of your family is I know, obviously, you've been very successful in your chosen career. Your brother's also been very successful in his chosen career. And actually, it's always something that's fascinated me in sports. You know, when you get mm. two brothers or two sisters or siblings, you know, the Nevilles, for instance, where they're all successful. But it's it, it's what was instilled at a certain point that enables that. And I'd love to get your take. You mentioned around your family was really loving and always let you try things that you wanted. Have you and your brother ever caught up and thought, I wonder why we were able to achieve what we've done as a family, you know, the impact your parents had that led to that? Yeah, we do, actually. And Mark and I, are, uh, me and my brother are best mates. And we only live two doors away from each other. So it's it's kind of like this um, opportunity to go running together. Our families hang out together. We'll go and play golf together when that's not very rare these days in terms of playing golf. But um, there's a close bond there. And we often have that kind of reflective moment after a run. And we just might be chatting about career things for him or, or things for me. And we're saying, isn't it amazing what we've been able to go and do and achieve? And that all comes from, you know, a very strong sense of self-belief and confidence that comes from being loved so much by our mum and dad and given so many great values that have just stayed with us and made us extremely curious and willing to take a little bit of risk and to venture out into the unknown because the base is so strong. If you've got a solid foundation at base camp, I think you then 
are willing to stray from base camp and go and explore the surrounding environment. And I think that sort of very fortunate upbringing that we had with such uh, loving parents meant that we were able to take that inner confidence and then go and explore the world a little bit more because of feeling so buoyed by the great upbringing we had as kids. So we feel very fortunate for that upbringing. It wasn't lavish or full of luxury holidays or anything of that nature, but it gave us other values and foundations that have actually been more important than those things that maybe other kids had that we didn't. Thinking back to that time, were there any things that you and Mark have thought, you know, that is what helped us to create that self-belief or that is what gave us those values? So I've, I've listened to podcasts. There's one that always sticks out where the speaker's uh, family used to send him on two weeks a year to do, do work experience. And he would do one week at a, build, you know, a builder's or manual labor, whatever it was, and one week with a cousin at sort of, it was in the US, so it's at the sort of DC doing all the political things. And the idea there was to show sort of different types of career, different options, and, and how you could do different work. I'm not saying it was that, but were there any deliberate things that you think back now, it's, ah, that's why, you know, dad did that, or that's why mum did that to help you foster, you know, those values and self-belief? We grew up in quite a sort of a Christian environment, going to church every Sunday, and some of those principles of working with and, and meeting people that were very different to us, but recognising that we're all the same, meant that we were very comfortable in very mixed environments, very comfortable with adults at a young age, very comfortable with my, my dad would you know, occasionally stop and just pick up a homeless person and bring them home and we'd feed them and stuff like that. So that wow. ability just to reach out to someone outside of your normal circle and do something for somebody else. So a sense of service and a sense of be grateful and give back, even if you haven't got much to give. You know, he was very charitable, giving kind of guy. And that's, I think, at the essence of us, one, recognizing that we could do anything we wanted because, you know, who's who's to stop us? So that sense of risk-taking and adventure, but also a sense of service and a sense of wanting to treat other, everybody really well. So a real connection with other people that I think is to be in good stead in terms of building relationships and seeing people for who they really are and not for who they might pretend they are or, or what the perception of them is, get to know the real person. So some of those things help. There wasn't really any staged career management or job exposure. It was do a newspaper round, mop the floors after school and get out there and earn some money because I haven't got any money to give you. So, you know, dad would give us a tiny bit of pocket money, but it's like if you really want to spend any money, you need to go and earn it first. So that that helped as well in terms of a bit of drive and a bit of grit to go and earn some money so we could afford to do some stuff as as kids, as teenagers, as all teenagers do. So that's been really interesting part of our youth. And one of the challenges of being a dad of having a successful career in management consulting is then I've been able to spoil my kids and, you know, take them on holidays. And my, my wife, Jen's from Australia. And, you know, our kids have been to Australia and to America and to Europe and they've traveled the world before they were 18. Whereas I, I think I left the country when I was 15 or something for the first time. And uh, and so they've had a very different upbringing to us, which is going to be interesting to see what they make of their futures. How do you balance that? And I asked this for other parents in a similar position to you because I get listeners yeah, of, all, of all sorts. You know, everything you've described makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I want to come back to your point on self-belief, but maybe you can answer it with how, how you do it for your kids. But yeah, how do you balance that you know, lifestyle that you've obviously built and you want to give them the best of, of what you have versus giving them, I guess, some of the those 
experiences you had where you had to go to work to get pocket money? Do you just create that environment at home because you control that? Or are there other things that you do to, to help foster those values that have helped you be so successful for your own children? I think that's really challenging. You carry with you the script from when you're a kid all the way through your life, and you have to edit that consciously. Otherwise, you just carry it being a 14-year-old boy in your mind, even when you're a 49-year-old boy. And so I think there's some editing of that script that is required because, you know, I'm quite a contradictory dad, I guess, in many ways where I, I want to give my kids the things I didn't have, but I want them to learn the lessons that I learned. And you can't learn the lessons that I learned as a kid. If, if all of a sudden we're going on holidays and they've had an iPhone since they started secondary school. And, and so I, I'm caught in this contradiction of wanting to spoil them a little bit because they get to have some things that I didn't have, but also trying to teach them the lessons. So I guess we abstract the lessons and try and teach them as principles and values as opposed to force them to have a really hard existence when that's not necessary. So I think affluence and opportunities, I think affluence in particular can be a real burden for children. And I worry that maybe my kids will be more burdened by their upbringing than I feel blessed by mine. Uh, and that's a really... Why so, why so? Well, because I think my upbringing with nothing gave me all the drive, the creativity and the hunger to go and make something of my life and and make something from a brilliant foundation, but with sort of low expectations. Whereas my expectations of my kids are really high and and the environment they've been have is really fortunate for them. And I think that's harder sometimes for kids to appreciate that, absorb that, and then go on and find their own drive and reason. So I think, um, I think Mark Twain, he said that, that you know, at 16-year-olds, my, my son thought I knew nothing. And at 24-year-old, I realized that my dad had learned a few things. And so I think there's this period now, I've got a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 15-year-old who in particular are going through that phase where they almost need to discover for themselves their drive and their passion and what they're interested in. I'm excited to see what they do with their lives. They're such bright, kind boys, but now they need to discover what is going to make them tick. And that would be very different to my upbringing and, and my choices, and I'm excited to see what they do with their life. It's a really interesting point you make around the sort of the expectations. And again, I, I asked this knowing you've talked a little bit about it on another podcast where you, you sort of talked about both at home and work, you can be a little annoying with your expectations and, and pushing people further than uh, maybe they think they can go. But how do you balance that? And again, I asked this for, for other parents listening, you know, or, or soon to be parents of in our industry, it is one where expectations are high and at work, you're very driven. And to your point, what you've achieved in your career and your life means you know it's possible. You know, the, the big thing is once you've done something, it seems easy. And actually, how do you temper that to enable your children to find their own passions and, and find what drives them as opposed to, and this may not be a bad route, but follow your route because it obviously worked for you? I think you learn that. As a dad in particular, there was a lot of projection onto my kids of, well, look, I've blazed a path here. Why didn't you just follow that path? And then I think I didn't, my dad didn't project like that onto me, but because of the success and the fun I've had in my career and, uh, and relationships and those things, I kind of projected some of that onto my kids. And I kind of learned when my 
oldest two are sort of 14, 15, that actually that wasn't really how it worked. And that actually the, the best thing to do is to be more like a coach than like a dictator and actually just say, tell them about all the things, the talent that they've got and what opportunities they have and how much you believe in them and that you are full, you are whole, you have all these possibilities in front of you. Good luck in making great decisions and in making the best of your life and of your situation that's in front of you. And I'm learning still to be less of a, a, a driven dad with my kids and more of an enabling father to just coach them into discovering for themselves. Because it's only when you believe it in between your own ears that you change your actions and your direction in life. Having someone else tell you or prescribe for you a route just doesn't really work, right? It's People reject that. And of course they do. And it took me a long time to work that out as a as a first-time dad, we don't get a handbook or a set of instructions. You just kind of have, oh, yeah, that's not really working. So now I need to back off, love them to pieces, and coach them in making great choices and decisions for themselves. I think some great advice in there, Adrian. And I want to come back to a point you mentioned earlier, and, and you can talk about this for yourself or how you, you instill this for your children. But something that struck me when you were talking about going off and, and doing your missionary work between school and university, and, and actually, if I go all the way back three years ago, and we talked about how you, you have never drunk. And as you know, and others do, sort of your story inspired me to stop drinking. Um, and if I look as good as you at 49, I'm going to still not drink. As a... <laughs> so you did a one year with no beer, is that correct? And have you carried that on? Uh, so I did a I did a three months no beer, um, okay. which turned into a just a no beer. I will admit, for those who know me, I have the occasional glass of champagne. It sounds terribly pretentious, not as a sort of a Friday treat, but you know, when you go to a wedding or something, I, I quite like, I think I quite like a glass of champagne. It tastes nice and there is no non-alcoholic alternative that tastes as good. But I did a blog on it actually, gosh, probably just after our interview, or it would have been that got quite a lot of people reading it. And yes, sort of from, yeah drinking far too much, you know, growing up in a rugby culture and right. actually not having the sort of self-belief you did in yourself, which I'll come back to, to not drinking at all. I think it was for, you know, for me, it was phenomenally powerful. And I do think anyone should try three months without alcohol because the self-confidence it gives you is fantastic. I mean, I say that as what many would consider a confident person, but when you realize that everyone else is slightly awkward as well, and that's why the first hour at weddings are slightly you know, uncomfortable because everyone's trying to get a Prosecco or two and in. Everyone's you, shuffling around <laughs> a little bit on their feet, yeah. It, exactly. You, you get quite relaxed with it. And yeah, that's been you know, the most impactful life change I've probably ever had is just cutting out alcohol. And well, I will just say, Nick, not many people do what you have done, which is hear an idea, think about it, then test it out, and then implement it, and then change a habit and make it a, a principle that they're now living by. That's quite an interesting and unusual ability to take something abstract that you hear from somebody else and then implement it into your own life. So well done. I compliment you on your, not just because it's not drinking, but just that process you went through is quite an impressive process. Oh, thank you, Adrian. And I think part of that, and I'm sure we'll come, in fact, I'd be interested to your point on self-belief. Yeah, Actually, for me, a lot of that comes from when I left Baringa, started an a online estate agency, which was a terrible idea for anyone watching this, don't do that, but actually failed. And I think, you know, that was a really powerful moment for me because as consultants, you don't fail. And, you know, we, as a broad group, you go to university, you get a consulting job and, and failure is something that can be actually quite unnerving. When I failed and realized 
my family was still there. My, you know, now wife's still there. Friends are still there. They all still, you know, love me as much. And actually not a whole lot's changed. I've lost a little bit of money, but no more than I probably would have spent if I had been working. You realize that actually you can do these things. And to your point, the worst you get with the test is more information. The best you yeah. get is something that that changes life. And I I guess to to bring it back to you, that point around self-belief, you know, that's what it comes down to. I had the self-belief to to stop drinking. You had the self-belief to never drink. But actually, where did that self-belief come from? Because in the story you've just told and what we talked about last time, there are many elements where there's a lot of peer pressure. So, you know, drinking at university, like we talked about, yeah. but equally not going to university for two years. You know, I, I think back to when I was 18 and a mix of wanting to get to the next stage of my life, but also fear of falling behind. You mentioned sort of that script actually was something that pushed me to it when a year out might've been a good thing, like you say, to mature a bit, learn a bit. Where did that come from? Was it something your parents instilled? Did you always have that just solid belief that you were right? And if others, or sorry, you know, your decisions were right for you. And if others didn't like them, that's, that's up to them. Where did that come from? Yeah, I think it does come from that parental influence of when you feel like everything you do, your, your dad and your mum celebrate every achievement that you have and every step that you make, you kind of feel a little bit invincible because you're so surrounded by a loving environment that you just feel like, okay, crikey, I, I must be pretty good. My dad keeps telling me I'm amazing. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to start believing that script. Uh, and so I think right from a really early age, I took a, a soundtrack for my life of I can do anything because um, my dad keeps telling me I can do anything and that soundtrack I just kept replaying it and replaying it and replaying it and just led me to have not invincibility because that, that would be a false description of what it is but it's a, a confidence to try and if you get knocked down just get up and go again because you'll find a way through this uh, and so that confidence that self-belief came from accepting a narrative planted in my head that you're a really special boy, you're a really good lad, you know, oh, I'm so proud of you as being my son and, you know, you're going to go and do great things with your life. And all this scripting and this narrative, you can either reject some of that and say, oh, that's not me, or you can just play it, replay it. And that soundtrack of positivity and can-do attitude uh, and a confidence in me from someone else that then I started to have in myself, I think just gives you a great foundation to then go and experiment and take some risks and try things out in life. For anyone listening, and I'll, I'll bring this back a bit to our sort of consultant listeners, because I, I know our consulting parents would have got tons from this, but for anyone listening, or maybe even for, for those with kids, how can people instill that? I know we've talked before about your book recommendations and as a man thinketh, and if the answer is just go and read that, it's a, it's a short question. But to your point around, you know, my changing of habits being unusual, I think actually having that self-belief is quite an unusual thing. You know, deep down, a lot of people are actually quite anxious, quite nervous, and particularly in our industry, you know, it's a, was it an industry made up of, was it unsure, in insecure, insecure over overachievers? There you go. I think that is true. So I was chatting with uh, one of my friends here at work just yesterday uh, about this topic, Nick, and I think it's about choosing the scripts that we keep replaying in our head. And, and there's this new book that I've just been listening to and just started. I haven't finished it, so I can't fully recommend it because I'm only in chapter one. But I listened to the author on a podcast and I, I was so impressed with him on this podcast 
that I went and got his book on Audible. Uh, I'm now an Audible listener, Nick, after your recommendation three years ago. So that I can listen to these books when I'm driving and running. And the book's called Soundtracks. And he's articulating the choice to be a continuous learner and editor of the soundtracks we play in our head. Because we have 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. So as a as an average human being, 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And some of them are really random, scary, weird, out there kind of thoughts. And some of them are, are good thoughts and constructive and helpful. And really the choice that we each make, which comes back to As a Man Thinketh, or it comes back to Viktor Frankl, or it comes back to Seven Habits, all of those things are in those books. But in this latest one, soundtracks, I love the analogy of what's the soundtrack you're playing in your head? Now, I described my one as a kid that is stuck with me. But how do you do that in a consulting career? Well, for me as a consultant, the way that you do that is you shrink the noise of the imposter syndrome and you shrink the doubting voice that's coming in one ear and you play the soundtrack of, I learned something today and that's going to make me a better consultant tomorrow. And today is going to be a great opportunity. I'm going to learn something new, which will make me a better consultant the next day. And so the way to survive and thrive in a consulting world, in my experience, for me, has been seeing everything that happens as an opportunity to learn, to grow, to stretch, so that when I sleep and I wake up again, I've actually learned something yesterday that I can now use today. I I really like that. And can you tell me the author as well? If not, I'll look it up afterwards. I can't remember, but I was listening to it in the car this morning, but I will, I will find it for you and tell you as we go. Jo- John Acoff, J-O-N, and then his second name is A-C-U-F-F. Fantastic. That sounds like a, a great book, and, and I love the soundtrack analogy, and I, I think it is so powerful and actually implicit in what you've just said there around how you frame that soundtrack everything is a learning as opposed to a a mistake or a you know some a problem or an issue it sounds like it's been natural to yourself and i'm sure and well i know personally with these things you just you get into that habit but when someone says okay adrian how do i do that are there any practices you point them to you know is it for yourself prayer is it meditation is it journaling i know we talked about what's the sort of if you can pick one, what's the thing you give, you gave to your, your friend you were talking to about this or others like them? I hinted at it in my last answer that I I went back to As A Man Thinketh or to those books that I mentioned to you in the last podcast, but you don't read a book and then have an aha moment and then change. At least I don't. And that was a bit frustrating for me growing up. I was thinking, I read that, I believe in it. Well, why am I not now living it? And that's quite a frustrating gap emerging between who I want to be in my head principles that I think would add masses of value to my life, but I'm waking up each day and I'm letting myself down. And that can send you into a negative spiral that you can have anxiety, you can have self-loathing, you can have this imposter syndrome. So what I learned was it wasn't just having the aha moments and it wasn't just reading good literature and having those insights. It was creating a diet of feeding my brain with good information on a very regular basis. Just because you had a healthy meal doesn't make you a healthy person. So it's actually the habit of listening to podcasts, the habit of reading new books. Now, what I'm going to learn in this Soundtracks book, which I'm only on chapter one, might be exactly what I learned in As A Man Thinketh, which I read 25, 30 years ago. But this guy is saying it in a different way, in a different time, using different analogies, using instead of 
old language, as a man thinketh, he's coined soundtracks as a phrase. It might be teaching me exactly the same principle, but what am I doing, Nick? I'm feeding my brain with positive, stretching stuff that's fueling me to be healthy, mentally healthy today. And if I don't feed my brain over the next month, my brain's probably going to deteriorate in terms of my mental health and well-being. And I experienced this firsthand during lockdown. I got so intense about helping the business survive and thrive and decision-making and worried about all the things that could go wrong that I stopped running. I stopped reading. And I was just intense, working long hours, nights, weekends, planning, replanning, adjusting, setting new disaster scenarios of all the things that we might have to do. And I got so intense in being in the business, I forgot to feed myself and I started to feel anxiety and I started to feel stress. And I spoke to you last time, I've been really lucky that I don't really suffer from stress and anxiety, but I felt my mental health deteriorate during the first three to four months of our lockdown last year. And I kind of caught myself with thinking, well, you haven't run for a month. And running is one of those things you do to make yourself feel better. It clears the Tetris uh, lines in my in the game of life. And you haven't read anything. You're not listening to good podcasts. And I discovered a podcast, not just yours, but another one that I really loved that, that helped my mental health through the last year, which was the High Performance Podcast. I was, I was literally about to re just recommend that to you, Adrian. So, uh, you know, it's coming out every Monday and then they did the short ones on Wednesdays and Fridays. And I got into listening to that and it's sports stars and artists and business people. They're only like 45 minutes long, but it was like food for my brain. So I'd run, listen to a podcast and I felt like, huh, I feel better. And all of a sudden I started to climb out of my sense of anxiety and sense of stress that I was experiencing and rebuilding myself. So I guess my long answer to your question is, how do you do that? Well, you have to feed yourself mentally on a very regular basis with a diet of things that are going to build that positivity and build that self-belief and build that confidence. Because it's not about having an aha moment, it's having hundreds of them. I love that. And it is a great podcast. Um, my team actually bought me the book of um, Nim's Die. I don't know if you've listened to oh, that. Yes. It's an amazing Mountain guy. Mountain climber. Yeah. Uh, his book is equally good. But yeah, it's a brilliant podcast. And I, I think your point is really powerful, actually also about, and we talked about it on the last show and you've sort of, it's implicit in everything you've said to date as well today is actually about choices you know, with your phone. You can listen to any podcast with almost, you know, frankly, world leaders or inspirational sports people, business people. You can have your social media on on things that are positive. And actually, it's making that deliberate choice to do that, which is what you know, I take from what you've said of actually it is that compounding. And it's interesting also to hear what you said about lockdown. I hadn't planned to talk about it because I, I, I always like these shows to be sort of something that can last for years. But this will be a history lesson, I'm sure, in a few years' time. But I, is that the thing that helped you? You mentioned there sort of running, getting back on track. And almost maybe for anyone in your team, any team really, anyone listening, how can they spot those warning signs? Because I had the same challenge as you. Like I felt my mental health really deteriorate. But I think you've got to be quite aware of your mental health to be aware it's deteriorating. I didn't want to spend too long on it, but for anyone listening, how can they spot that and know that they should start listening to those podcasts and doing things like, like the running and other things you did? That's a really difficult question, particularly if you live on your own. When you've got kids and, and 
a wife. My wife's pretty good to let me know when my mental health's deteriorating and impacting her mental health. Uh, so there's a good, nice feedback loop there that uh, kind of hits you in the face at times. Like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I have been really grumpy, miserable, sod for the last a couple of weeks. You know, it's, a, it's time for you to get out of that office and and actually sit and have dinner with your kids. And and you know, perhaps you and I can go for a walk the dog together. And you need to get out of there. And so she was calling me out on my sort of poor behavior and poor work-life management and processes. Uh, I don't know how you do that when you're on your own because it's having people around you who care for you, who poke you in the ribs and highlight things to you that aren't quite as good as they should be. And then that's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And first of all, your first reaction when you're not feeling good about yourself, my first reaction is like, don't you realize how important my job is and how much work there is to do? And can you just leave me alone? You don't understand how how challenging this is in this time. Uh, and then even feeling self-justified for having a bit of a rant, but then on reflection thinking, oh, I let myself down there. Why am I? So it's actually my own reaction to being called out that was the trigger for me. It's like, crikey, that's, that's not who I want to speak to my wife so yeah maybe there is something maybe she's got a point uh, right yeah why haven't I done these things so then you kind of put back into practice some of the things that you know have helped you in the past just on blind I'm, I'm reaching for straws here they used to work in the past I hope they work again so you go back to some of those habits that you used to have and they did work and then all of a sudden you start thinking clearly again and have a bit more headspace to to do that so if you're on your own I'd say talk to people you got to call it out early. Uh, you need to speak up and just say that I'm struggling and you don't know the end of where that conversation is going to go, but just say I'm struggling. I'd, I'd really appreciate the opportunity to talk. And I learned how to say that. Uh, and I've never really said that in my life, but I learned how to say that to Jen. I'd, I'd ring her and I'd say, I'm struggling at the moment. So when I get home, I could really do with your help. And asking for help is not something that I was particularly good at in that way. And so reaching out and just sharing how you're feeling I used to like to share how I was feeling if I knew where that whole conversation was going to end. So, but sharing how you're feeling and not knowing what was going to happen next was new for me. And I'd encourage anyone who is feeling the blues out of rhythm from their usual self to just speak to anyone, a colleague, a friend, a family member and say, look, I'm struggling at the moment. I could do with just chewing this over with someone. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think our, our respective wives are also both. My wife is also called Jen, so our respective Jens have, have played an equally powerful role during lockdown. Because yeah, hearing how your wife helped you is very much how mine helped me. And the the walking the dog has been a godsend. We got a puppy seven months ago, and yeah, that that's really helped. Like you say, I do feel for people who don't have, frankly, someone to give them that direct feedback. But I think great advice there. And I'm going to hold myself back coming on to what you talked about there around you. Know, being able to have those conversations because if time allows I want to come back to more of sort of your leadership style and how you've developed but I'm very conscious that you know we've kept in touch since the last podcast I know a bit about the Beringa journey obviously we're, we're sitting in your new new office that's very nice I must say but actually it'd be great to turn more to the firm and dig into a few things that I think are very unique to your journey the firm's journey and you know if I'm honest giving advice to our listeners who are people growing firms like yourselves. And I know that others in our industry look up to Beringa as the sort of, that's the vision they've they've got. And I'd love to dig into some of that, but almost maybe to start us off on on sort of the next chapter, it's been three years. What's been happening? How, how has the firm changed? Where are we now? You know, how big are we? For my listeners, could you just give that overview of, of where we are? Yeah, I mean, Beringa has 90 partners in its partnership about a thousand people working for the firm. 
We've got a thriving business in Sydney now. Uh, Pete Sherry down under in the team there just doing an amazing job uh, growing our business in Sydney. Uh, Christian and the team in Singapore doing an amazing job growing our business in Singapore, uh, which is probably new since you and I last spoke three years ago. Yes, um, our team in the US are growing. We've got 25, maybe 30 people now in the US with Brad and Ben and Sabina, who joined us uh, recently to help us grow our US business in FS in New York. And then Shep and some other new joiners joining in our energy practice to build in the North American market. And we'll also be launching our business in our products and services industry in the US in the coming months as well. So a a growing North American presence and a continually evolving and growing business in Europe with Ollie and Alpi and Anami in Belgium and in Germany, uh, building out our Northern European business. And then in the UK, we seem to go from strength to strength. We've been building out our energy and resources practice, our financial services business, our products and services business. And then since we spoke, we launched our government practice. So we started a government practice about two years ago, and now we have 30 plus people in our new central government advisory business here in the UK. So it's been a, an incredible journey from the about 45 people who are in the business when I joined in 2007 to about 1,000 people today. So it's been an adventure, and it's a privilege to be part of such a successful, fun, and friendly firm. Wow. A lot has happened. I think uh, I'm trying to think about I, I would have left in what 2015. So I think the team was probably only 350 then. So it's certainly grown a lot. And even since we last spoke, Adrian. I know. It's like when you leaving was like a catalyst for our growth, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> well, I won't be offended, but uh, I've been told that in other environments. So maybe it was. But um, on to better and bigger things, I know. <laughs> You've sort of teed me up quite nicely there for everything from what's gone really well in that time to to what. I guess, has, have been adventures you've tried, you know, to our point around habits, things you've tested out and, and haven't worked. And I'd love to almost, I'll ask both questions, you can take them as you want. That's a fantastic growth story. There'll be some fantastic highs, but there'll also be some some lows and challenges. And I, I hate focusing on it because you know, it sounds negative, but it's where people learn the most of maybe start with the challenges. You know, what have been some of those biggest challenges for yourself and the team? And, and thinking back, how were you able to overcome those? I think there's in in any of these sort of stories that you hear about firms, uh, you see that kind of straight line growth, and underneath that is a whole roller coaster of ups and downs. So I don't want anyone to think that's been easy. I wouldn't want you to think that it's been a straight line um, extrapolation of growth. The challenging elements of this are around finding the right talent and setting that talent free to come and express themselves and be, build a business in their image, which is our strategy. So our strategy is hire the best people we can find. Um, with deep content, subject matter expertise, who are kind, who are real decent human beings who just make strong personal connections with clients and with their teammates and operate as a we rather than an I. So we're not a very good business for that kind of hero culture, which you sometimes see. It's much more of a team-based environment. Uh, and, And in building a business and attracting that talent, sometimes you get that wrong. And sometimes you hire people that don't fit and they join with what appears on the surface to be we and team, um, but actually a little bit too I and me. And they're not great team players. They're not that collaborative. Um, some people who join from bigger organizations will join us and they'll think, well, there's 
a lack of brand or structure in Beringa because we're quite entrepreneurial and we keep some of that quite loose and they struggle to transition into our business because all the infrastructure support they had in their last firm doesn't exist in Beringa. You need a lot more initiative. You need to be a lot more proactive to go and make things happen and create from scratch something that other people would have inherited in a bigger organization. Uh, and so we've had people join and leave because they haven't quite made that transition. Uh, either it wasn't for them or they weren't for us. And so we, we've been pretty good at, although it's difficult at the time, um, hiring talent and then keeping the talent that fits the DNA and the culture and the values of the Beringa model. That sounds great, but it's actually quite challenging managing senior talent that don't quite fit into the model. So that's one challenge. Two, I think the international growth has always been a challenge for us as a firm. Being UK-centric heritage means you have certain extrapolations of beliefs and cultural norms that don't don't work in North America and they don't work in Singapore and they don't work in, in Germany or Belgium. And so um, learning how to be a more multicultural bringer culture is the journey that we're on to make sure that we um, stay true to the values of the firm, but also expand in those international droggers, letting them have their own expression of personality and national culture melded with the bringer values and culture. So that's a continuous learning uh, opportunity for us and our leadership team so that we give people enough freedom and um, anchor them to the values of the firm as they grow their individual parts of the business in those geographies. We're a single P&L, Nick, as well, across the globe, which has been a real strength of the business, but also means that everybody leans in and supports each other in those growth, but also wants to have an opinion uh, on what's going on over there because it's all one P&L. So what you're doing in Sydney you know, matters to me here in London or What's being done in Belgium matters to someone in Connecticut. And so having a single P&L has been a real strength of the collaboration, but also means lots of people want to input to and support each other and question each other's decisions that are going on across that global um, build out of the business, which makes that quite challenging. So, yeah, not without its challenges, for sure. I think we could spend the best part of today talking about all three of those, Adrian. So I'm going to try to limit my questions, but I think it's really really powerful points and actually some some great jumping off points. Maybe we start at that PL piece because one thing I, yeah, I see as an outsider for Beringa, but for any firm is there's, there's a lot of firms that, and maybe I won't take Beringa here actually, that, that grow to a point and then plateau and they, they yeah. struggle. And I, I think something that I find really interesting in the Beringa story is what you've just said, you know, there's now 90 partners, there's global offices, there's new practice areas. Actually, how you've managed almost, let's say, that operating model, you know, that, that global P&L, for instance, maybe we start there. Why have you decided to keep one P&L as opposed to breaking it out either by practice or by, by geography? Yeah, I think there's a strong principled reason for that for us, which may not be necessary in other firms because you might want to manage your risk by having separate P&Ls or maybe even create a franchise model, and that might be the right answer. But for us, we wanted to align the economics of the business to the values and the behaviors we wanted our partners and our teams in those geographies to live by. And so that means treat the firm's money as if it's your own money. And being an entrepreneur as you are, Nick, you understand that when you hire someone into your team, you want them to feel that sense of ownership of the business, just like you feel it pulsating through the blood in your body. You want them to feel the same way, that They'd only spend that money on on that activity or on that 
chair in the office if they felt it was adding value and it wasn't wasn't frivolous. So the single P&L and us all recognizing we're in it together um, meant that we felt like that created a sense of ownership and belonging and entrepreneurial endeavor that we're all in this together. We share a single P&L. Your success is my success. Your failure is my failure. And so it meant that we are highly collaborative across the globe to support every bit of the business, knowing that if it fails, it's kind of our fault and our responsibility to lean in and, and do our utmost to make that person and that part of the business a success. So the P&L was symbolic of the behaviors and the collaboration we wanted to drive across the business, and it's worked. Now, the question for us going forward is, can you create that same collaboration uh, and those behaviors, but also manage the risks that come from having a single P&L? So something for us to think about as we grow up over the next five, 10 years. And within that, how do you manage, I guess, the the conversations below that between the partner group? And I, I say this, it might be a completely moot point, but if I'm thinking I've got a partner in the UK who's running a practice, smashing the doors down and taking, you know, bringing in however much for the firm, and I've got the Sydney practice as was when it started. And there's no judgment here that one is harder than the other. But to your point, you know, having launched a business and known what goes into it, actually, like pushing a stone down a hill, those first few yards can be some of the hardest. H how do you manage those conversations around the team to get everyone on the same page as you are? Because when it was 10 of you or 20 of you or 30 of you as partners, that's probably easier. Now there's 90, you know, going on 100, it's hard to get you all in the same room. So how do you manage that to make sure that the partner in the UK, let's say, understands and empathizes with the partner in Australia such that they have that shared culture? Yeah, I think our partnership, although it's 90 people, that does sound quite a lot now that you say it, uh, actually feels quite an intimate group of people who are, we're on a call every every two weeks, we have an all exec call. We have different you know bodies working on international growth, on our people strategy for the firm, on our marketing strategy globally, and different subsets of the partners all working together. Uh, and so the internal roles that the partners take cut across their industry functional area that they're selling in the marketplace. So there's lots of reasons to connect, to have empathy for and support for each other across the way that the firm is organized and run. And as a partnership, we're a little bit old fashioned. You know, we still vote on stuff together. So we say, OK, that's a really important decision. We should have a partner forum on a Thursday night. We'll get all the partners on a team's call. We'll have a debate and someone will put forward a proposition and then we'll say, right, we're going to have a vote on that as a partnership group. Uh, and so we use those traditional mechanisms of one hand, one vote, and let's let's get in a room and debate it out and see if we convince people that it's the right thing to do to expand the business into Singapore or, or whatever it may be. So it's that collaborative team-based philosophy that then is underpinned by governance and groups of people working together. So they've got lots of reasons to trust each other and then a formal process of voting on our decisions as a as a partnership that means that we stay pretty joined up i'm sure it could be better and i'm sure at times people feel like they didn't quite get what they wanted out of that debate and that decision um, but things are reasonably transparent and open and debated and voted upon as a group i'm just visualizing the 90 of you in a room voting on things now to your point around bringer being an entrepreneurial firm and it might just be look we we know each other so well we get on this is how it works is how do you avoid you know, politics creeping in in that sort of environment? Because one hand, one vote potentially means people doing a lot of you know, socialising things and a lot of trying to corral people. Now, some of that's just a fact of life. But how do you balance that need for entrepreneurial drive with a full democracy 
yeah. at that level. Well, this is a this is a great topic and one that we're debating internally at the moment, Nick. So you've hit a sweet spot of conversation where you know as we scale the partnership to a hundred in in people's heads, when the partnership's a hundred, it feels like a that's a big partnership now. Will all our processes and practices scale? I hasten to add that you know most of our partner meetings are now all virtual because of covid and uh, most of our voting is just a, you get an email and you click on a, a link and you just go and vote and so i i think the trust that exists within the partnership is one of the things that astounds me and i'm sitting in an interesting position as the managing partner of the firm where i feel how much trust the partners have in the leadership team of the firm and how much i have in them so there is a high degree of institutional trust where we just say, well, that's your domain of expertise in how our marketing function is going to work or what we're doing in building out our energy resources business in Singapore. I trust you and and you bring something to the table. And as long as it doesn't set alarm bells ringing in someone's head, people are like, oh, I trust you guys to get on with it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I, I'm all in. And so that high degree of trust facilitates speed of decision making that keeps it entrepreneurial and transparent at the same time. If you take trust out of the equation, I think you get lots of friction and then it will slow down. Then it won't feel entrepreneurial. Then you get lobbying. Then you get bureaucracy. Then you get process put in place. Uh, and so we're trying to build a great degree of institutional trust amongst the partnership and amongst the whole firm so that we can continue to move at pace, even though we're a large firm now. So with a thousand people and a hundred partners, we still want to be able to move as if we were just 100 people and 10 partners. And so if you've got trust, it oils the wheels of how the business works, how decisions get made. I think that quite nicely brings me to the recruitment point you mentioned and getting getting people right coming in the door because implicit in the trust point is they've got to have that, you need to trust them when you hire them. And I'd love to know how you balance, and this may not be attention for you, but I'm, I'm quite frankly using this as a selfish question for me in my business, sure. is... Actually, when you're growing rapidly as Beringa has, and you have, you know, you're driven, there's targets that you want to achieve. In a people or a services business, people are your, they are what you need to fuel that journey. But you want to get that right. How do you balance what I suspect is that tension of you have go growth goals to hit, but you don't want to lower the people bar? How do you balance that? What do you do and what would you advise anyone in my position or others to, to get that right for their business? Yeah, I, I think it, it does come back to that clear values that you understand your culture and you know the culture and the values in the business that you're building and, and you're, you stay very clear on what that is and you're able to articulate it to both to candidates and internally, particularly for you, Nick, in terms of building your business. I think you need to have some of those things written down, have some videos about it and have some debates and discussions about it with your team so that then you can start trusting them in conveying that culture and those values to candidates that they're interviewing on your behalf. And so I think if you're, you have clarity over your culture and your values, then if that permeates through the organization, then people represent that when they're interviewing. And they know that, oh, okay, that person said I 15 times, I did this, I did this. And they didn't talk about their team. They didn't talk about a followership. So when I'm interviewing someone, I'll say things like, so what would be three pieces of feedback someone who worked for you might give you as upward feedback? What would they say about you? And listening to their answer to that question is a great insight into, huh, how do they perceive themselves as a people leader and as a manager of a team? And so 
part in the questions you ask. And then now knowing that our culture has been a massive differentiator for us for 21 years, and it's reasonably clear on the inside what that culture is, then I think people then carry that into their recruitment conversations and in their CV screening. And when they do a first and second interview, they'll do deep skills and have you got data and analytics and, you know, are you a great banking industry expert? But the, one of the big things I say, is, is this person a culture fit? And, and so it becomes self-moderating. So the team are moderating the cultural fit of those prospective candidates for you. So I don't do all the hiring in the business. I, I interview lots of our directors and partners on their way into the firm. But I trust everyone else in the firm to carry the torch for the Beringa culture and to use that in their assessment of people who apply to join. Some great advice in there for me, Adrian. As you can see I've been taking notes. Um, so th thank you for that. And I think that nicely also brings us on to something that I think Beringa have done very well and I know that others in our industry struggle with, you've touched on one angle, which is the sort of geographical move, but actually that practice area move is something that I've seen many consulting firms try and hasn't gone as successful for them. You know, they start as an FS consultancy and then they move into something else. And maybe it, it's a good extension of that hiring point is, how do you decide when you're trying to hire a new practice lead, what do you look for? What is it from all of your experience having done it that says they're going to be the one to run this business? Yeah, you're looking for, in some ways, people who have a proven track record and a, a history of building successful businesses in other organizations. But you're also looking for people who don't quite fit in those other organizations. They feel slightly like they're not quite swimming with the, the tide of that organization, uh, which is kind of how I felt uh, at Accenture. I felt like I was being successful there, but I, I was swimming against the tide of the strategy of that business. So you're looking for people who've got some track record of success and business growth, and they can sell to clients, they can build teams. Be looking for people who are, they're not quite feeling at home in the environment that they're living in, and they want to try something different. They want to be different, more authentic versions of themselves. And, and then you're, I see what we do with those senior leaders is, creating an environment for them to come and experiment and try to build a business in their image the way they would love to do it, but they're not allowed to do it in the big organization they belong to today. They've got some rub, something that the way that they're being managed or the goals that they're being set or the criteria that they have around what they're allowed to do is frustrating them. So you're looking for some of that, that frustration to manifest in a uh, enough of a irritant for them to say, right, I want to go and do this somewhere else. And, and then you're appealing to those people and you support those people in that transition into our business. Let me give you a good example of building our government practice. You know, Graham Swan and Sarah Ashley, who joined us to build out our government practice, were just clear from day one at what great people people they were, how much integrity and authenticity they had around their personal values, their the way that they talk about people and manage people, the high esteem they were held by the clients that they had worked with. And we said, well, we, did, we hadn't planned on building a government practice, but with these two joining us, that would be a massively exciting thing to do because it's advising more strategy in the government space. It's not the bit of government work that we weren't interested in doing. It's right in the sweet spot and analogous to the type of work we've been doing in our other industries and finding two great leaders with that kind of cultural fit, 
just became an obvious, yeah, let's do it. For, for 10 years, we were saying we don't want to build a government practice. Yet we met two leaders who have such a great fit with the Beringa culture, great pedigree, and a bit of a rub from what they were doing in their previous organization. It's like, great, get them in. Let's go and build a business around these two individuals. And that's just been incubated within our current business and has just grown fantastically over the last two years. I'm going to keep with that. I didn't appreciate that the government practice was not quite chance, but as you say, it happened on on the two partners to lead it and, and so sort of the rest took off. But actually, how do you create the environment for a practice like that to be successful and people like that to be successful? Yeah. You obviously, you met these these two and thought, actually, let's give it a go. But I'm sure there were structures around it to ensure success. So what are those structures that you've put in place to give you know, central government, but your other practices, that best chance of success? Yeah, we have a principle of incubation. So we incubate everything that we do in a, a more established part of the business. So the government business was incubated inside another part of our business, where the working practices, the culture, how we do hiring, how performance management is done, how we do com commercial negotiations with client, all of those processes and working practices were shared because they sat with inside for the first two years of their existence inside another business so that they can learn by joining all the leadership calls every Tuesday night. They're involved in all of the staffing and the moderation and bandings and performance management. They're just learning how Beringa works, not as an island out there through theory, but they live it for the first two years inside another part of the business. And that way we get great almost by osmosis, they assimilate the bringer way of doing things into the way that they then do things. Complicity in there is quite a long-termist perspective. And if you're giving people two years to start a practice, you, you're presumably comfortable that in two years it might not work. And how do you get everyone comfortable? Or how, how have you and the, the partnership got comfortable with that long-term perspective? Because again, it's in a world where we focus on quarters and you know, years and, and growth, that long-term perspective is quite unusual. How, how have you and the team fostered that and become comfortable with it as a leadership team? I think it's, again, it's part of our DNA and it sits at the heart of who we are, which is we're very, very long-term focused as a business. We talk about 10, 15, 20 years in front of us of what we're trying to build and grow together. I lived in a business that was very short-term focused that would have quarterly earnings calls and profit rallying around we need to squeeze some more profit out this quarter just a horrible place to live what a frustrating existence to be chased every quarter every few weeks for numbers and numbers whereas we've set out what type of business do we want to build and when we were hiring graham and sarah it's like this is what we're going to do for the next 10 years together so we set out like a 10-year strategy for the work that they would come and do and build with Beringa, and, and so that Long-term focus is in our DNA. Part of being an LLP, part of being a partnership is recognizing that our structure as a partnership rewards you whilst you're in the business. Then you make partner. It rewards you while you are a partner. And then when you retire, you have an interest that then gets earned out after you finish being a partner. And so everyone's commercial and their reward feedback is around, are you building a long-term sustainable business for the firm? that will exist after you've left. And so that thinking permeates everything we do, which means we don't react to short-term opportunities or failings in an overreaction kind of sense. We take that long-term view. So when 
COVID hit, for instance, we said the first principle that we came out was, well, we're not going to let people go. We're going to hold on to everyone's jobs because we, the long term is we need all these people. They went through all our hiring process. We know they're super talented. So we want to keep the team together. It was the like, number one principle on the playbook for how we respond to the COVID situation is keep the team together regardless of what we need to do to make that happen. So it's that long-term thing that informs all of our decision-making. Now, of course, there are short-term pressures to get a proposal in on Monday. You've got to work all weekend to get it done. So there's lots of short-term pressure uh, that comes from clients and being consulting. We're, we're full of all of those pressures as normally. But underneath all that is a long-term ethos for the strategy of how and why we're building the business. I really like that. And I, I'm going to ask this question just because, again, I know of people who've have tried the practice building and bringing someone in, it hasn't worked out. And yeah. ultimately, that will be because of the opposite of what you said, you know, how they haven't fitted with the values, they haven't been right. But I asked this, this will be sort of the last question on this topic, but really as a practical one, because as consultants, we're all very good at selling ourselves, we're very good at explaining, we're good at reading each other and, and giving the person in front of you what they want. But actually... If you take sort of that's the you know, the positive edge, what are some of those things that you and the, the team have done to really dig into whether these people are right? And I say that as, you know, if someone listening to this is thinking, I'm going to open a practice, you know, let's say they're a smaller firm, Beringer as it was when you joined, you know, they, they opened the FS practice with you almost what are the things bigger risk? Yeah. Well, it, it, exactly, Adrian. And, you know, it's paid off obviously for the, the firm, but how would you advise someone else to really? You know, get under the skin to make sure that person that's in front of them that you know, feels like a brilliant fit really is the right person to lead that, that next part of their business. Yeah, I think both in the recruitment process and when you're now in the firm building that practice, there's a real necessary ingredient of absolute brutal honesty that makes it more likely to be a success. So when I'm interviewing partners from maybe one of the big four, and they talk about their career journey and they explain things in the language of which they've had at the big four. And I say, oh, that's brilliant. I'm so excited to meet you. We're excited to explore this opportunity together. And then through the conversation, as we progress, I, I find an opportunity to say to them, things are really operate quite differently here at Beringa. Let me share with you what that's going to feel like. You're going to have less brand presence in the marketplace than you're used to. And that's going to be difficult. Because you might introduce yourself to a client and they go, who are Beringa? And that's you'll be like, oh, I've never had to answer that before when I worked at one of the big four. Also, the expectations of a partner here are that you work on client projects all the time. You're selling, delivering, leading our teams, helping our teams do a brilliant job with the client. You, know, you don't have an office. There's no, no office for you to go into. You're not going to have loads of internal roles that uh, help you just make yourself look busy with grand internal titles like global head of administration, blah, blah, blah. None of those exist in Beringa. So you're going to be measured for how well you deliver great client work with clients. So do you want to do great client work? Because sometimes some individuals in those larger organizations see their progression is to get away from client work. Uh, uh, and the progression in Beringa is to spend more time with clients and coaching the next generation of people to develop their expertise and their professional disciplines and deliver even more value for clients. So our partnership team are, are focused on clients, which isn't always the case. So it's about being really honest and saying, this is what life's going to be like when you get here. 
it's going to feel a little bit lonely. It's going to feel like you're working for a brand that doesn't have the same cachet that your current brand has. Maybe. I think today, being a thousand people and the growth we're having and the awards we're winning, I think our brand is on a meteoric rise to take its rightful place alongside the McKinsey's and the big four of this world. And I see our brand emerging to take its rightful spot, but that hasn't always been the case. So you've got to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and get dirt under your fingernails and get out there and make it happen. And that isn't always the case when you work for a a larger organization. So that honesty on the way in helps prepare them. But then the honesty once they're in the business, like, oh, great first six months, I went and spoke with the team and this is the feedback for you. You're a little bit too much like a partner from one of the big four and not quite enough like a partner at Bringer. And they go, what does that mean? I said, well, that's what we need to find out. So what do you think it means? And actually giving them real feedback from the team uh, that they're working with. And so it's that uh, assimilation of new partners into a business that's establishing that they're leading, but giving them quite honest feedback about the journey that they're still on in fully acclimatizing themselves to building the business in the bringer way. I really like that. And it reminds me, have you read Principles by Ray Dalio? By yeah, chance? love yeah. that book. So a lot of sort of parallels there, but I think some really good advice and for anyone listening, just those honest conversations are key things to have. I'm very keen to turn to to yourself as a leader and for any leaders out there. And we, we touched on at the start, obviously, your upbringing and your, your values, but actually, and it's something that has always stuck with me since one of our Beringa events, you know, going back to 2014, it was Bronick from Hiscox. And I always say, because I, I like to say when people have had an impact on on my life. And yeah, it's sort of actually his talk had a lot of impact. And and one thing that stuck with me, he mentioned obviously the growth of his cox and how as a leader, you know, his cox has grown, let's say it was 200% at the time. And he, he made the point that to be the leader, he has to grow his leadership style, his skills 200% to match. And now I know we've talked before that managing partner is the first among equals. So I appreciate some of the answer might be delegation, but how have you done that? You know, the firm has grown, well, it's grown threefold since I left. It's grown just shy of 100% since we spoke three years ago. How have you had to evolve your leadership style and, and what are some of those deliberate and conscious things you've done to do so? Yeah, I, I will start with the point that we touched on last time around the role of the managing partner. You know, we're 90 partners and 200 directors in this business. That leadership responsibility and accountability for leading the firm, growing the firm, managing our risks as a firm is shared across that whole population of people. Uh, I have a real privilege to do the role that I do, but it's in conducting the choir and leading the choir. I I am not the choir. Uh, And so it's a real privilege to work with such talented people. So part of the answer to your question is, one, that I am just the first amongst equals and the partners that I work with in this business are the best people I've ever worked with, full stop. I mean, just incredibly talented leaders in their own right, in their deep content expertise, their, the people leadership that they demonstrate, the ambition and entrepreneurial endeavor that they bring to the table means that we have so many pockets of talent in different business units, in different geographies, in different capability areas that are driving the growth of the firm. And what we've created as a leadership team is an environment where they can thrive where they can go and do their best work, where they can be successful, not constrained by bureaucracy or stupid rules that constrain their entrepreneurial endeavor to meet some internal hurdle thing that they need to do. So all of those things, I think one of the keys to our success, 
Nick, has not been introducing stupid rules and not introducing lots of bureaucracy. So it's in some things we haven't done that have allowed that leadership talent in our partner and our director community to go and build business areas in their own image successfully without being chopped off at the knees by the organization that hired them. So some, some of our greatest success is what we haven't done, but most of our successes come from super talented people in that partner and director and senior manager group who are the lifeblood of the growth of the firm. Does that answer your question? It does, and actually gives us some interesting things to, to pick up to your point of what you haven't done. And actually, I know we touched on earlier that the partnership you know, still votes, and that's largely how you decide what is right and wrong for the firm at, at large. But how have you decided almost not to do things? Because there must be at certain inflection points, be it size, be it geographies, yeah. where you say, or someone says, we did it like this here, we should do it like this at Beringa, or you've just got so many people now, we should do a certain process that we didn't before. How did you create or how do you make sure that that not did list stays where, as big as it is? Because I think that's a really interesting point of the not doing has actually been more powerful in some instances than what you did do. Yeah, and that becomes a real source of debate for us as a leadership team because Alison, our COO, uh, has been brought in to professionalize our corporate capabilities and to enable that growth of the business. And some of that are clearly that we needed to make some improvements and investments. We've moved office, as you've seen. We're building out our IT capability across the firm in the tools and the uh, the protection that provides us. We're building out our finance function, our HR capabilities, all of the different enablers that we have as a firm require investment. And some of those individuals you might hire in from a, a large corporate join the business, say, oh, what we need here is a, a checklist to do these things or stop doing those things. So we're like, oh, hang on a second. That doesn't fit with our culture. So how do I achieve the same result around, I don't know, GDPR compliance or information security or risk management of our legal contracts? How do I create the same result of improved professionalism without introducing bureaucracy? So it's about being really clear in the intent behind the professionalization and the maturation, the maturing of our firm as we grow so that we have all the things that we need to be professional and successful without introducing the bureaucracy and the slowness. So it's a real challenge to some of the people we hire into our finance, legal, IT teams. It's like, we want your skill set. We want that professionalism. We want to do that in a way that doesn't just make things slow and make us all filling in loads of spreadsheets and ticking loads of boxes and sitting through rubbish training that no one's really paying attention to. They're just hitting fast forward on. So, so how do you get the same end game but think about it more creatively and differently. And I think that's quite a challenge, but quite exciting for people who join us. Instead of just rolling out the framework that I implemented when I was at Corporate X, actually they come here with the same intent, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way. So that gets their creative juices flowing and allows us to pivot and grow up as a business, but do so in a way that's very Beringa rather than just copying what everyone else is doing. With that do you find it is just a continual evolution of bringing those people in and that professionalism or, and maybe it's an and, are, have there been certain inflection points that have, have led to that? And again, I ask this for anyone who's going through that growth journey, almost how you've approached that to make sure, you know, to use consulting language, the operating model you have is sufficient or bigger than the, the business you are. Yeah, I'd say this is an area that we are still wrestle with as a, as a team 
is that am I six months too early or am I six months too late? Should I invest it in? And, and to be fair to the team, we did look for a new office 18 months before we were able to move, but couldn't find the right place. And, and it took ages. And we were really grown out of our last office. Uh, and I think that's a, in a microcosm around that decision and that process of how lots of parts of our business have felt. Oh, we've kind of grown out of the way we do that, um, but we haven't quite got the next one ready. And so we continually keep growing out of the way we do things, whether that's, I don't know, performance management or whether it's HR processes. And so we're continually evolving. And with Alison and the leadership team that she's formed around her, we're just getting much better at now of seeing where the business is going to go over the next 10 years and actually building the capabilities and the infrastructure to support the growth of the firm over the next 10 years rather than reacting to, oh, we've grown out of the office. We're all sitting on each other's laps. Can we hurry up and move, please? So I think we've transitioned from being sort of a year late to just in time to now having a leadership team around Allison in our corporate capability that's getting ahead of the growth of the business and starting laying down the tracks to make that growth even more smooth as it happens rather than feeling a bit bumpy. And maybe one for anyone who's who's on that journey, and, and this is sort of hindsight question, I guess, to what you've just described, if you could, would you have changed it? Would you have tried to get these processes in earlier and ahead of time? Or actually, do you think having the time again, actually the way you've built the business has worked and is one that you would, you know, you would follow if you were to do it again? I wouldn't have changed anything about the the trajectory and the growth and the things we've done, because if I was the same person, I probably would have made the same decisions. But with the benefit of hindsight, if I was doing it again, there are certain areas that I would have invested quicker and earlier because you know that actually just equipping people with these tools just makes life so much easier. Uh, and so there are things that just remove friction and remove pain and enable the growth of the business rather than it being such hard work doing it in an old-fashioned way. So I think, yeah, I would have done some of those things quicker. Are there any that stand out to that point? I'll give you a silly example going back 15 years. Yeah. So I'll just go back 15 years. When I joined the business, you had this conversation, should we have executive assistants? And there's a big debate. I mean, it went on for years about, you know, I'm not sure the value of getting executive assistant. No one had one. And and I was like, oh, I've seen them work in other organizations. I think it could be really valuable. But we, we kind of kept kicking the can down the road and saying, we don't really need them. The, you know, we're... we're proud of our just do it yourself look after your own diary and uh, you know and then when we got executive assistance oh my goodness the value was so obvious that we should have done it earlier so there's little moments like that where sometimes as a group of entrepreneurs you do debate stuff that you should just uh, just decide and and let's just crack on with it and that's a, a funny example from like 10 12 years ago when we actually decided to get executive assistance and you know nicola my my ea uh, is just incredible and has saved my life on hundreds of occasions and to think of the fact that we we struggled along trying to do it without people like nicola here to support the team it was just a it was a we we're sweating the small stuff where the there was so much bigger value that if we just opened our eyes a bit wider we should have just moved quicker I think it's a really good example. And, and your last point there around focus on the big picture, not sweat the small stuff, I think it's a, a really powerful point. And actually, I think, Adrian, probably a place for us to start to round off today, because I'm very conscious that you know, you've, you're giving your time for this and you've, you've got a very busy diary. And I, I'm going to come to our last questions, which I've changed a little because they're still the same ones broadly that I asked you three years ago. So I don't want to ask the same questions to get the same answers. But I, I want to ask some that I think will 
give some additional answers. And hopefully, if people have listened to this as a part two of two, we'll give them some more value. And I think the first one, you know, you've talked about podcasts, we've talked about books and Audible. I'm really pleased you enjoy Audible, by the way, I think. Game changer. Well, it's just the ability to listen to things when you're, you know, you're on the train or driving or walking. It's just, it's fantastic. And, and like you say, you know, we're, we're looking at your bookshelf next to us. There's so many great ideas that have been written down. You know, so many great people who have done things that have written down how they did it. And, you know, I think more people should learn from those. But I think one thing that struck me when we last spoke, you mentioned every year you give the partners a, a book and it's been three years since we last spoke. So I'm going to ask this in, in one way and take it how you wish, but the question is going to be what? what are the three books you've given over those last three Christmases and why? But if there's an even better book that you've given since, I'd love to hear that too. Yeah. Oh, crikey. Can I remember them all? So one, we gave everybody a little book called The Four Agreements this Christmas. So The Four Agreements, in fact, you can grab a copy just there and you can see the author just down. That's it. And that was a really interesting, very thought-provoking book that I gave to each of the partners around Four agreements, um, which I'm going to struggle to make sure I remember them. Don't take things personally. It's not on the back, but I'll no, they're, have a look. They're, they're chapter headings, but I don't want to make sure I, I get them in the right order. So, yeah, first one, uh, be impeccable with your word. The second, don't take anything personally. The third one, don't make assumptions. And the fourth one, always do your best. And those four agreements and the principles behind them, and it's a kind of a story metaphor in the book, actually really resonates with our leadership culture and with the culture across Beringa. Be impeccable with your word, you know, mean what you say, say what you mean, be honest, be kind in the way in which you communicate. Don't take anything personally. This is not about you, it's about we. And this is not about if someone says something, be curious about what they're saying. Don't take it personally. Don't let your emotions get in the way of a learning opportunity. So actually dive a little bit deeper. Don't make assumptions. Assumptions are the mother of disappointments, you know, so make sure that you aren't assuming stuff go and do your homework do the fact checking get the data to support your decision making don't make too many assumptions and then always do your best you know that's classic Beringa phrase be kind be curious be great at work so you're here to just give your all and do your best so that was uh christmas 2020 and the book the year before i learned lots of feedback from the partner team around the book half of them said I don't read them uh, and <laughs> I'm sure the other half give them to charities or hand them off and re-gift them to somebody else um, but I got a clear message about make them smaller as so the one the year before was it was a tiny tiny thin book called The Flywheel which is like an extraction of the chapter from Jim Collins out of Good to Great and then expanded this flywheel principle into just a very short book and it's a similar time as we are one year into our three-year strategy where we have a bring a flywheel and we use some of Jim Collins' thinking to shape our strategy. And so we've got all of them, the book called The Flywheel, and it's just an easy read, but a great reminder of how everything we do has consequences. It's about building momentum. And with momentum, you can really go places as a business. And what's our job as a leader in creating that momentum in the bring a flywheel? So those are the two last two Christmases. I love them. The four agreements I haven't heard of, so I will get myself a copy. The the flywheel, actually, yes, I was gifted by a former podcast guest, a friend down in Bath called Dave Kelly, who gave it to me. Um, and since I bought the uh, Good to Great as well, it's, it's a fantastic little read. And yeah, it's interesting to hear the feedback that you, you got from the partner group. The Seven Habits isn't going to be on the next Christmas no, list, no, then they, I take they it. They need to be small books now. Just... 
the best one actually I, on that point, I'll find the link and send it to you because it's either called The Art of the Doer or The Path of the Doer, but it's almost a flip cartoon book and it's about 10, 15 pages, but it's sort of as an inspirational read to your point around, you know, filling your, you, you know, your soundtrack with good things. It's, it's one of the best little pick-me-ups I've read. So I'll dig it out and send it to you. because yeah, the, um, If your partner group wants smaller, not bigger, it certainly fits the bill. And then the last question really, Adrian, and again, this is one that I've adapted as this is a round two. It's the first round two I've ever done. So thank you for being the first uh, guest to come back on the show. As you will probably remember, and I know we both listened to it in advance, Last time I asked you for your advice of people who were approaching partner um, and you know what stuck with me then and, and sort of listening back was your point around being a, a gardener, not a chess master, which I also read Team of Teams after our yeah. conversation, which is a monster of a book, but it's fantastic. And this time I want to ask it slightly different and go, I guess, past partner and to your point around your leadership team. And, and really it's giving one piece of advice to three people within that team. One who's just made partner, one who's just you know been promoted, one who... I would say is leading a, and I don't quite know the correct terminology for Baringa, but leading a industry area, so take central government. And then the other is someone who's leading a division, if you like, so financial services as a whole. And the question is quite simply, what's the one piece of advice you would give to, to each of those people? The same piece of advice or different to each of them? I'll say different because then we get three bits, but if it's the same, you can say. Yeah, I think it's similar to what we talked about last time, the evolution of leadership and the role that that person's playing and the impact that they're having is pretty profound on people's lives. You and I talked about this uh, off mic as well about in the past, people have a big impact on us. When you're a senior consultant, you look up to people, don't you? And they're like, wow, uh, and both positive and negative impact. So some, some people that I looked up to and observed closely in my early career had a an impact in I don't want to be like you impact, as well as others that I looked at and thought, oh my goodness, that's incredible what you're doing and how you're doing it. I would like to be like you. And so the first thing I would say is that to anyone in those situations is you have a leadership shadow where you're casting a shadow on all those that work with you. Be conscious of it and carefully choose the shadow that you're casting as a result of your leadership style and your leadership behaviors and be so conscious that actually choose to edit it so that it's having more of a positive impact rather than the the phrase that we use internally with our partner team is one of be yourself more with skill and so some people use that phrase you know i want to be an authentic leader as an excuse for them just being themselves with less skill and just excusing their bad habits because that's who I am and I'm an authentic leader. Well, actually, I think the, the job of an authentic leader is to be yourself more with skill. Uh, and the skill part means you have to edit yourself a little bit and try and be the best version of yourself because you have a leadership shadow and it impacts the working life and maybe even the mental health of those that you're leading. So be conscious of that. That would be my first one. The second would be, well, if I think about the expectations that we have of our partner team and our directors is to lead with passion and energy because there are lots of negative things going to happen every single day. You're going to get resistance from a client. You're going to get resistance from traffic, from stuff going on at home. There's always going to be resistance and grit in the system. I think... Uh, is it Napoleon's quote? He says, leaders are purveyors of hope. 
I think that's a really important role that we play as leaders is, yes, edit your leadership shadow, but be a purveyor of hope. Have passion and energy about the area in which you're building and the way in which you're going about leading your team so that the sense of this is possible, it's achievable, it's never been done before, but we could do it. That ability to flip people into from disbelief to it's possible And then once you think it's possible, then your brain starts to find reasons to support why it might be possible. We're going to build a central government business from scratch. Okay, how are we going to do that? Okay, well, if the leader believes it and gives you hope uh, and leads you in a way that's authentic uh, with a sense of possibility, then I think it's more likely to be a successful outcome. So those would be two things. What would my third be? I think this is a personal one um, that I've been on this journey since our podcast. In fact, Nick, I took myself away with our HR director, Emma, and we went on a coaching course and became qualified as executive coaches. And I've really enjoyed learning a different type of leadership skill in my toolkit of how to coach, how to ask better questions, how to facilitate people finding the answer for themselves rather than telling them the answer. Uh, And that the role of a leader who is also a good coach, I think is, in in my sense of things, the future of where leadership's going. I think we have a historic sense of leadership as chess master. And if you you take my comment to you last time about being a gardener, I I think I'm, I'm now settling on actually leader as coach, someone who's not just tending the garden, but is coaching other people to explore themselves, find the best in themselves, find what motivates them, find the answers from within rather than from without. So gardener could also be a little bit, I'm watering, I'm providing the sunshine, but coach puts you into a place where I'm listening to you, I'm asking you great questions, and you're thriving because of the environment that you're in. So leader as a coach would be my kind of final piece of advice. See yourself as a coach. I think, Adrian, a great point for us to finish on today and some really good advice. I take your point on the gardener metaphor. I also like what you say about the, I think, authentic self has at times become an excuse to forget about other people's feelings. And I think to your point around, you know, just be the best version of you or be you, would be the authentic self of you with skill, I think is a really profound frame for it. So some great advice to finish on. And all that's left to say is, is thank you very much. You know, really appreciate you making the time for, for round two. I know I've got a ton out of this, learned a whole lot I didn't know before. And I think filled in some gaps that I probably had from, from round one. So, you know, I think the sequel has been as good, if not better than the, the first <laughs> the first movie and thank you very much for your time today well brilliant nick i've really enjoyed it it's been a great conversation and good luck with the rest of the podcast series thanks a lot adrian cheers bye-bye i hope you enjoyed today's episode of climbing consulting if you have any guest recommendations comments ideas thoughts on how i can make this show better for you just drop me an email it's nick at createengage.co.uk and i really look forward to hearing from you